Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now in fast, a four-day losing streak for the S&P. The Nasdaq dropping another 2% and crude falling to its lowest level since the beginning of the year. The worrying signs for the big bank CEOs and a major real estate company. Plus, the Baba bounce. Chinese tech and the emerging markets seemingly defying the calls for a global recession. Can you still get in on this Beijing bet? And later, SpongeBob SquarePants shares of Paramount dropping as the CEO warns advertising revenue is not going to be good for the fourth quarter. The details and options action straight ahead. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money live at the Nasdaq Market Site. We've got a full desk tonight, full house. Tim Seymour, Julie Beal, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with the potential canary in the coal mine for the economy. Shares of Blackstone dropping nearly 4% today to their lowest level since April of last year. The stock has been hammered in recent days as the asset manager is faced with mounting withdrawals from its benchmark real estate funds, forcing it to offload properties, bump up against its redemption limits. But are Blackstone's troubles just the tip of the iceberg? And could they signal bigger problems for the real estate market as well as the economy? We've been talking about this for some time. And here we are. We know that investors want their money back and they want it back in droves to the limit, Guy. $69 billion read, I think. And David Faber's going to come on and talk about it in terms of redemptions, not being able to get out. And I think that where there's smoke, there's fire. There's no question. Listen, the Fed has pretty much told you they want asset prices to go down. On the top of that list is real estate. And kudos to Dan, by the way, who I think in the spring, if memory serves, mm-hmm. when Blackstone was like 120, Jay-Z was here. Not that, Jay-Z. Joe Zidal. Yes, of Blackstone. Dan pushed back on him in terms of exactly what we're seeing now in terms of real estate and how can we bullish in real estate in this environment. Now it's all coming to fruition. In terms of the stock, though, you have to ask yourself, is this news going to sort of signal a short-term bottom? I think it actually may. Oh, Dan. Uh, I mean, listen, just looking at the stock, I mean, it went took off, I mean, from 65. That was the pre-pandemic high. It was probably in late 2020 when a lot of stocks did after we had the election, after we had the vaccine news. And it went from 65 to like 150 in a straight line. I mean, this is, again, a financial company that, you know, is I mean, it just made no sense. Right. And we've seen this again and again. So just for me, the trader hat, I'm too dumb to understand most of their businesses. But when Joe Zida was on here, he was talking the Blackstone book, but he wasn't really paying paying much service to the fact that with rates going higher, what it means for some of their key businesses. And I, that's what we did. So I suspect the stock will round trip back to 65. But so it's not that far away at this point. I mean, we've talked again and again about what got inflated, what sort of benefited from free money, basically. And this is a major beneficiary of free money. The ability to buy up all this real estate at zero percent interest rates effectively. We start to reverse that and we're seeing the other side of that at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think calling this the canary in the coal mine is a little silly. It's the ostrich in the coal Ooh. mine, right? We know that this has been going on for a long time. We've seen I got a low visual ups. on that, by the yeah. way. Right. Got a visual. It's crowded, yeah, I right? I mean, I'm tall. I'm tall. I like ostriches. I mean, I kind of look like one, so it's okay. But I, I think, look, we've known that this impact of free money has got to have some kind of catastrophic impact. And I think we're seeing that unwinding throughout the sectors. Blackstone, obviously, but there's multiple sectors that have benefited from it. It's going to spread to tech probably as well. 
Well, I think there's a combination of things going on here. And, and retail pressure on, in the REIT space has already been there. And if you look at also, just look at utilities, look at things that have been yield instruments. And these are terrible charts, folks. Uh, and let's get back to why people are investing in REITs. I, I don't think a lot of that has changed, despite what's going on with interest rates and the volatility and the pressure on, on real estate assets. If you think about low volatility, uh, fixed rate returns, the dynamics here. And if you think about uh, the run on these assets, this is not... You know, this is not what's going on with CMOs and where we were back in 2008. But um, I do think you have a case here where these are illiquid assets. Um, And often, look, hedge funds will tell you that we're actually protecting you from yourself by putting a gate up because, in fact, we we want to limit the amount of volatility in a portfolio. And so that's really what's going on. By the way, this isn't just Blackstone. This is Starwood. This is this is CBRE. um, This is BlackRock. And these are some of the biggest funds in the world, um, especially for wealthy and high net worth individuals. The underlying message, though, guys, that there's little faith in terms of the bounce back or any bounce back in the office space market, mm-hmm. in the commercial real estate market. Um, there's not little faith that rents will continue to rise at this rate. And so that's I mean, that's why people want their money back. They don't have that faith in the markets. That that to me is a huge signal that huge. people are not confident in this economy we're, whatsoever. We're coming up to the three year mark of covid and covid lockdowns. Think about that. Three years later, people have gotten used to working the way they're working. Why should there be any faith that things will get even to some semblance of back to normal? So people are going to sell first, ask questions later, because if things do turn around, there's going to be <clears> ample time to get back in these names. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Let's get more on this situation at Blackstone. With David Faber, who wow. joins us here on set. I mean, this is CNBC royalty. Roy, no, no, no. It's like money. He's, he's, he's on the, what's that big thing with the rocks with the people's heads? Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. Mount, he's in it, yeah. of the CNBC. He, Thanks, the guys. This better be good stuff, Jim. I'm, I'm going to go now. I was just <laughs> walking around in the rain in Midtown, and Sandy called, and I'm like, sure, I'm available. Whatever you need. So how, how concerning should should this be? You know, I don't know that it's overly concerning. It's not as though there's something nefarious going on mm. at Blackstone. But it's interesting. You talked about the low rate environment, of course, benefiting the purchase of real estate. But it also benefited the enormous acquisition of assets from people looking for yield. And you guys have mentioned this. You talked about the RIAs who are selling this product as a high-yielding product in a zero-rate environment, right? Four or five percent. Maybe you get some asset appreciation as well. And we were following it. We've been, you know, I've been following it for the last year, year and a half because of the enormous growth. It's been around for six years, but it was taking in billions a month. And obviously, many investors were looking at Blackstone, looking at the stock and saying, well, you're taking 1.25% off the top of this thing. If you get to $100 billion in assets, and by the way, they were at $70 billion most recently, you're talking about over a billion dollars in fee-related income every year. So this is going to hit earnings. What's interesting, Melissa, as well is, Their NAV has been higher than the comps. Uh, If you look at the publicly traded REITs where they've been valuing things has been higher. They they do it every month. They they do the NAV and they will again. But the expectation is things are going to start to come down. And so those people are able to get the NAV as it was printed for October. They did well. So many of them wanted out that they hit the 5 percent limit for the quarter or the two and a half percent limit, 2.7 whatever percent limit for the month. And so they've been gated, but they will keep trying to get people out as they can, meeting those redemptions. Yeah, um, no surprise. Uh, Blackstone had a statement, and the spokesperson said that they have ample liquidity. They said something like $8 billion in, in accessible capital. Part of that was um, floating rate loans. And I was wondering what your take on that. When I hear floating rate in a rising rate environment, that to me is a red flag. Um, but how should we think about it's that? It's not clear to me that they're going to have any real liquidity concerns uh-huh. in the sense of meeting the redemptions as is under the agreement. In other words, up to 5% a quarter. 
Uh, I think you do have to also watch their selling of assets. They did a big deal last week. Right. It's obviously not going to close for a while, that VGMGM grand deal. That will take in some money. They will continue to sell some of these assets. It's a lot of rental properties. It's a lot of industrial assets. But, you know, they know what they're doing in real estate, but it doesn't mean they're immune to the marketplace at this point. And so we'll have to wait and see, Guy, what the next marks are on this portfolio. Yeah, it's interesting, but does that have any ramifications for the broader market? I mean, Blackstone put a lot of eggs in this basket without question. For 18 months, it paid off extraordinarily handsomely. I mean, does this now manifest itself in other asset classes? Because to me, this potentially sort of tip of the iceberg type of stuff in terms of what Mel just said, cheap money. People getting out on the risk curve, taking but making bets maybe they shouldn't have made. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'll leave it to you guys to sort of in terms of the market implications. Certainly there are investors and those who are perhaps even on top of things more closely and the RRAs who are as well who say, hey, this is an opportunity for us to get out with a, with a capital appreciation and we've been doing well and redeploy. And obviously what is only nine months later or whatever it is from where we started, a much higher rate environment. Um, yes, S-REIT, uh, the Starwood REIT, any number of others where you were getting sort of what was promised as a fairly high rate uh, in what was a low rate environment, I think you have to keep an eye on. But the broader implications, I'll leave it to you guys to sort of tell me, because I think it's a good question to be asking, but I don't really know at this point whether it's going to have those. When I think about other REITs having to do similar things because of redemptions in terms of selling properties, it seems like that would be a major pressure on the, on the commercial real estate market. All of a sudden, you've got a, a lot of sellers of these assets in a rate environment, which is not conducive to sales. Um, I would imagine that would put pressure on, on prices overall. I know you're not a commercial real estate expert, but... No, but that's a, that is a key question. Yeah, and a lot of, you know, since I started reporting on this, I was uh, many real estate investors have been interested, and I would get emails from people uh -huh. who were uh, in that business because they are, first of all, they were a voracious buyer, Blackstone, yeah. of assets. And so yeah. they were always, you know, bid number one potentially. And if you were a seller in that period, you were happy that Blackstone was there. And it works the other way. So it's a, I don't, they, they did well on the sale that they did last week. They have a lot of assets that they bought well, but certainly there is going to be potentially some pressure on prices as a result of them needing to create more liquidity. Again, this is not. They're not a forced seller. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, re they're really not. And, and if you think, I mean, well, I just. the gates really prevent that, right? I mean, exactly. the gates prevent that from And it's happening. not as though they put them in just last week. They existed. Right, right. It was always, that's what you were signing up for. But of course, during the period where they were taking in assets uh, very quickly and where you were getting a 5%, let's call it, return, where there was nothing to get in the Treasury market, nobody was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah and I was going to say, you know, the return from inception is over 13% in, in this fund. But uh, they have $1.4 in cash as of November 11th or 12th. There's a credit facility of almost $8 billion. Right. So I, I just want to reiterate, not a poor seller. Um, I think there's some good news here, too. If you think about the inflation prospects of, of the, the biggest inputs in inflation are owner equivalent rent and, and rental properties. And this is, this is certainly going to be helping the inflation story, to be clear. I mean, when you think about commercial real estate and so you think about the feed through. Good news. It, it absolutely is. And, and I just think, uh, again, for, for Blackstone, as David pointed out, this has been a juggernaut in terms of an earnings profile and what this has meant. I think the biggest issue right here is a way on earnings. And I think that's where you're going to start to see downgrades on Blackstone. Yeah. I mean, there's a stock specific story and then there's the whole 
this is great news if you want the Fed to stop, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, I mean, stock-specific story. I mean, listen, consensus estimates for earnings and sales for next year are basically flat, and then they're expected in 2024 to move up like double digits, maybe in the mid to high teens. You think of this, um, you know, dividend yield at 4.5%, the lower it goes, the fatter that gets. And again, David just said, the balance sheet's in good shape here. This is, it's not a forced selling situation or whatever. So when you think about it from an individual security standpoint, at some point in early 2023, this stock is going to, un- it's going to be an unusual value. We spent a lot of time earlier this year talking about some of the moves that they made in the insurance, uh, and that is likely to play off very nicely. I'm just curious, any thoughts how those two barbell um, this this economy that we've seen, low rate environment, high rate environment now, I think what they're doing in insurance really sets up well for the next five to 10 yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, insurance has become an area since Apollo obviously became in many ways an insurance company of interest in private equity, or let's call it alternative asset management for sure. I'll keep an eye on it like you will. I will say, listen, this is an asset gathering juggernaut, the likes of which we've rarely seen in terms of Blackstone. But that's going to slow. We know it, obviously, in the B-Reap product, which has been one of the key engines it is. And we'll have to see in other areas as well. Investors now have opportunities that go far beyond, you know, having to look for a higher yielding investment in fixed income or credit uh, that existed previously where you were taking more risk or obviously uh, can look not necessarily at the equity market, but simply at corporate bond returns and things like that. David, it is a pleasure to have you here. We awesome. hope you'll this was so nice. stop by again and sometime. It's great for you guys to focus on Blackstone for a while. You know, we rarely talk about that company in the morning. It's a $100 billion plus market yeah. cap. I'm glad you guys spent time on it. It's interesting. Thanks. Thanks for coming by, David. Always Thanks. a pleasure. David Faber of the Mount Rushmore of CNBC. Exactly. <laughs> Who else is on there, guy? Uh, well, you're on it. Apparently no one. No. I'm alone. I throw Mel on it because I sort of have yeah. to. She's getting there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. You got to like put in 30 years and then you're definitely on it. Right. Thank you, David. Um, you've actually been talking about Blackstone for a long time. On the way up. Yeah. For sure. And I looked like yeah. a genius on the way down, not so much. But I'm glad, you know, when Dan did call out Joe many months ago, it, it actually made sense in retrospect. And when you put so many of your eggs in that housing basket, you know, the sun also sets. However, I think at a point, Blackstone's a really interesting company still. You know, the redemptions are interesting. Maybe people getting margin calls somewhere else. They need to redeem things in these assets. Who knows? I don't think it's indicative of Blackstone necessarily. And the stock at these levels, to me, makes sense on valuation, despite what we've just talked about for the last 17 minutes. I mean, Guy was talking about sell first, ask questions later in the context of redemptions, but that feels like well, that's what's going on with the stock as well at this point on the news of the redemptions. Yeah, and look at how financial-oriented stocks have acted just in the last you know, few weeks as we've seen the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield go for 4.3% down to 3.5%. And, and I'll just say this, you know, Guy said, call out Joe Zeidel. Joe Zeidel is a really smart guy. And, you know, people tweeted us all the time, I, you're talking your book. Trust me, nothing in my book can move a market one way or another. But the head strategist for a firm like that, they're clearly talking their book, and they have billions and billions of reasons to do that. And I think, I assume that the house view has changed a bit since Joe was on, you know, three to six months ago. So it'd be amazing for him to come back and talk to us. We should be clear that to some degree, most guests who come on CNBC talk their book. So we're not signaling out, you know, Joe's idol in particular and saying you're a bad guy. When the smartest guys in the room are talking about real estate, I want to listen to them. And Blackstone has been far and away the smartest guys in the room. It's with some irony that their stock is now a yield product, too. After this, It always was. Um, It's probably six and a half percent yield on the equity right now. And I think the point we're making is is real estate markets and asset inflation are a big part of the bubble that has come out of zero percent interest rates. Um, It's not in the B-REIT. It's it's not necessarily what's going on right there, but the dynamic of where we've actually seen real estate, um, this is not 2008 with the kind of leverage, but I, I will say that these types of assets are the places where you see some of the biggest funds in the world that are actually you know, invested, and this is a painful time. 
All right, our next guest says bank charts are pointing to some trouble ahead. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Certigas, a Baird company. Chris, what do you see? Hey, Melissa. Well, I think when we consider the last week, you know, we're a week removed from what was originally viewed as a pretty risk on Powell speech. But in the aftermath of that, you know, most security prices are either back to or below where they were then. And I think when you put this in context of the banks in particular, which have acted very poor since then and the Blackstone news, it's a reminder that when liquidity was so ample for so long, it seeps into every nook and cranny of the market. We saw that with British LDI earlier this year, Blackstone today. I think the bank stocks are suggestive that we haven't seen the end of this trouble. So what we did here is we brought along a couple pictures. I'll just start with the simple observation. On the rally off the October low, just note, banks never took out their 200-day. S&P did, banks didn't. Divergence number one. Yesterday, Negative two standard deviation move on the downside for banks. Any time a group, particularly one that's below the 200-day, makes a negative two standard deviation move, you have to open your eyes. Um, it tends to give you some type of a message. And when you look at some of our other uh, charts here, I think in particular, um, you made a 20-day low on the KBW Bank Index yesterday. So made a one-month low. When you're in a downtrend, when you're below the 200-day and you're making one-month lows, if you're long, you have to exercise the sell discipline. It's a message to get away, get to the sidelines. One month lows in downtrends are the recipe for some more problems. Now, we also like to think about banks relative. And I'll show you a couple slides here um, that I think very much speak to a risk off environment. This is banks relative to gold. We like to call it paper versus rock. This peaked all the way back at the start of the year. The most recent rally could not make a new high. This has made a new three-month low uh, over the last several days. So banks versus gold continue, I think, to suggest risk off. Very similar here, S&P relative to gold. We had a 15% rally in the S&P, yet stocks broadly made no progress versus gold. What is the message there? When we look to hard assets outperforming financial assets, I think it's reflective of a big change of investor psychology and risk behavior. And you know, a very long-term look at this, this is all the way back to 2011, banks versus gold. When liquidity was ample, financial assets outperform. When liquidity contracts, hard assets outperform. So I think this is the beginning of a really important shift just in terms of what investors prefer. Uh, and then lastly, um, just to go to our last chart here, it, 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 it wouldn't be a problem if Citi wasn't involved. And I, I think it's hard to even imagine Citigroup is below its 2008-2009 relative price low versus the S&P. So if you bought Citi all the way at the lows back in 2009, you actually have lost money versus the S&P. So I think it's a concerning set of charts when we think about what the message is with the banks right now. All right, Chris, thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Um, today, obviously, we got a lot of warnings from big bank CEOs. We heard from Jamie Dimon at the Business Roundtable on Squawk Box this morning. We heard from Brian Moynihan. We heard from David Solomon. Um, Julie, where do you stand on financials? You know, I think financials are really hard because it's hard to create true differentiation when you're a bank, right? I, like, like, I go to First Republic because they have cookies, and that's kind of all I can tell the difference between. Love that. I mean, the, what kind the, of cookies? 
their chocolate chip. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and TD's got the pen. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And lollipops. Yeah, but I mean, that's the level of differentiation between the financial institutions, banks in particular, is really difficult. And you're seeing deterioration in the regionals. You're seeing deterioration among consumer finance. And I think you're just that's indication that the consumer just isn't as strong as we would like, and that's going to ripple through. So, in addition to being a sector that doesn't have a lot of differentiation, I do think it has exposure to reducing credit quality, and so it's not one that we're particularly interested in. I mean, Jamie Dimon's comments were pretty interesting this morning, and I know Karen was watching very closely, um, but basically he said $1.5 trillion households have saved, but that's going to run out in the middle of next year or so. So all those savings, they're being eaten away because of inflation, and that's troubling for the consumer. We've brought it up before. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to point to the consumer's balance sheet. The flip side of that coin is consumer debt now is either side of $5 trillion in this country, which is a historic number, and credit card debt now north of a trillion. I mean, the numbers continue to sort of add up against that. So $1.5 trillion, yes, in and of itself, it's a huge number compared to what the debt numbers are, not so much. City. Chris brought it up, like uh, because it's always a poster child. When there's look, trouble when there's trouble somewhere, you can be sure cities yeah. involved. And and whether it was the financial crisis and whether it was disparate parts of the world, I mean, they're given credit for having a global business. They're given credit for being the ones that are probably most at risk. I was actually selling some upside calls in the city a couple weeks ago, um, looking out to that uh, January February period where we we've been talking about markets with this range of where we expect you know after a nice rally going into year end, there will be a bit of a comeuppance. And I think people are starting to price that in for banks. Remember, banks sold off a. Great Aggressively. Then they outperformed from August through to this last run until this pullback because, in fact, people realized there really hasn't been that credit moment. And I think that's what we we, we sold them first. Right. Coming up, this stock's been on a wicked rally in recent weeks. That's according to one of our traders. We'll find out what is behind that run and what he's doing with the stock right now. But first, an earnings alert on Toll Brothers. We'll bring you the after hours action on that name and the details from the quarter next. Fast Money's back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth. 
including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Toll Brothers. Shares of the home builder higher after topping Q4 estimates. Diana Olick has been sifting through the report. Diana, what can you tell us? Well, Melissa Toll closed out its fiscal year with the strongest quarterly earnings in the company's history. But much of that is based on backlog from the first half of the year before mortgage rates shot higher. And it was also boosted by a gain from a settlement related to a natural gas leak in 2015. So in Q4, it delivered homes were up Delivered homes were up 13 percent, but new net signed contracts down 60 percent. CEO Doug Yearly said the dramatic increase in mortgage rates since March presents a challenging market as we enter fiscal year 2023. Many home buyers are on the sidelines waiting for clarity on the direction of mortgage rates and the overall economy. He also noted that there was no discernible change halfway through the first quarter. And that's important because mortgage rates in November came down off their October highs didn't seem to help much and nearly added that they will continue making appropriate price adjustments as 2023 progresses and appropriate means down. Bless up. Yeah. Um, Diana, that down uh, 60 percent contract signings number, that's down year on year. Yeah. Yeah. But historically, is that still a high number? Um, historically, no. I mean, I'm I couldn't say exactly looking at that number, but we're expecting to see that from all of the builders. Look, everybody says that everyone's on the sidelines. And the weird thing, though, is that we did see sales of newly built homes in October bump up more than expected, only because builders were buying down the mortgage rates. But in this case, when you're looking at those signed contracts um, being down, it's not surprising, especially given Toll's price point, which is in the luxury sector. Yeah. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick in D.C. with the latest on that. Um, Julie, are you a buyer of home builders? No, I mean, not really. I think there's still a lot more turmoil, a lot of things that have to get undone. It's not just mortgage rates. The problem is, is you have so many buyers who are stuck in their homes because they have fantastic mortgages and they don't really want to move. And I think that's just causing a lot of you know, static friction in the market. And for home builders, it's hard for them to really go out there with a product that they've already built, they've already spec'd it out, and get it at a price that's compelling to people when mortgage rates have risen as much as they have. They can only pay people so much to buy their houses, right? They can't keep buying down mortgages. And why would you buy the stock right here? I mean, the company just said, and Diana just said this, that they're adjusting prices down. down. Okay, Jamie Dimon this morning just said he's expecting a mild to a hard landing or a recession in 2023. So you look at the stock, how poorly it trades. It's down from 75 when everything was going berserk, when Blackstone, that we just spent a lot of time talking about, was trading at $155. Now it's $75. I mean, these stocks have more room to the downside, unless you think that there is some magic bullet out there that's going to turn our economy on a dime at some point in early 2023. It's just not happening. And these financially related companies in such a weird macro environment, they have the risk of overshooting the downside the way they did to the upside. But to Tim's point, he said it a couple times in the A block, this is not 2008. We don't have some sort of systemic risk. We just have a lot of weird dynamics coming out of the um, pandemic and all of those years of easy monetary policy. Yet, if you look at this fourth quarter, they came in um, at $5.60 on EPS, which blew away even the highest end estimate on the street. Revenue was better. And the, the magic bullet comes into form again, in my opinion, 
of 10-year yields, which continue to go down. And I think yeah. they will continue to go down. So sometimes it might be as simple as that. And the 75 to 45 might have encapsulated everything we've just talked about. Yeah, although, you know, 3.5%, 5-2%, wherever the 10-year yield is at right now, maybe it's down because it's telling you something. And the kinds of people who are buying these homes are the white-collar workers that are now starting to feel layoffs. Yeah, I think consistent with the narrative so far on the desk, why do I want to buy a home builder in this environment when I think that, if anything, they've been relative outperformers in their group, and we're talking about gross margin improvement next year. So, um, no thanks. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's up next. Defying gravity. That's what our Tim Seymour says this one wicked trade is doing. So, what name does he see flying even higher from here? Stick around for those details next. Plus, pressure mounting at Paramount. Shares getting SpongeBob SquarePants today. We'll hit the options market for a way to play it. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Don't look now, but BABA is breaking out. The Chinese mm-hmm. e-commerce name rallying more than 40% since late October. Own Tim Seymour says it is, quote unquote, defying gravity. So what's so wicked about this name? That is not a word I use. That is Tim's word. I wicked. don't use wicked. I mean, like something like wicked good, man. No, no, that's not <laughs> what I said. I think it's defying gravity because if you look at the last three days we talked about what the market has yeah. done, um, Bob is up 6% over the last couple of days, but it's up 23% against the S&P since Thanksgiving Friday, and there's different reasons for it. It's obviously been a story that we've talked about on the way down, and I, I joked the other night that we, we pretty much called the bottom on China on it when we opened our show with this China uninvestable on yeah. October 23rd, and in fact, since that point, I think Bob is up 45 percent and it's outperformed the market but there are reasons for it the china reopening is something that isn't going to happen overnight but the worst of this is certainly part to be priced in baba reported two two weeks ago or so you have a sense that um, there's a a softening e-commerce demand that we're starting to see thaw and build a little bit but i think it's as much to do with what i think is almost a a peace treaty between the government and these big tech companies they have kissed the ring they have suffered badly they settled with ant financial about three weeks ago Um, and i think if you're investing in emerging markets that's the other thing i've been adding to em here I've been nibbling at Baba, and I think this trade has more to go. In terms of the COVID lockdowns, I mean, Xi Jinping really showed he had two choices, right? He could have said, we're going to continue with COVID zero policy and just sort of dig in your heels and just go forward. Or you can say, you know what, we're going to ease restrictions a bit. And what we saw is an easing of restrictions. So is now China investable? We see that the government is willing to make some concessions. Investable, no. Tradable, absolutely. We talked about it on the 24th as well. That was the day, if memory serves... It's that big gray thing that has an, uh, what's that called? Elephant, the one with the memory, 
right? Yes. That's he the one kind of trunk. Nailed it. With the trunk. With the trunk. We talked and about it ears, that guy. day. Traded over 100 million shares. Traded down to 58.63 from memory. Closed at 63. We said this is the inflection point. You've had at least seven 35 to 50 percent rallies since Halloween of 2020, and we were about to embark on one. Stocks rallied 45 percent ish since. And to Tim's point, I still think it has higher to go. Or is this it? Well, I mean, listen, you know, when you talk about what has happened in China around the zero COVID, I think it's window dressing. I, I don't think there's anything really going on here. And I don't think that's actually why the stock has rallied. You know, I mean, I think to Tim's point, I think the, the broader point is they spent the last year just cracking down on these huge tech conglomerates. So maybe just easing a little pressure off of that. And what you think is positive news around zero COVID is enough to lift it off of just really negative sentiment. I think the real challenge is we don't actually know what's happening with zero COVID. There's all these reports that it's really happening. But if you look, there are other reports saying that movement has been still very restricted. People are still very much staying at home. And so it's hard to really be sure what zero COVID is going to do. But let's say they do release restrictions. It's not actually going to have a huge impact on e-commerce, right? That's not what happened here anyway. Everyone just went out to restaurants and traveled. So I think it's important to keep in mind how that's going to play out. For us, it's still not invested. You know, not when you have this much regulatory risk. Coming up, the White House is calling it one of the largest foreign direct investments in U.S. history. $40 billion to build not one, but two Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing chip plants. What's this mean for the chip trade? More on that ahead. But first, the meta meltdown shares sinking in today's trade. We'll bring you the details behind that move next. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Major indices all down again on fresh recession jitters. The Dow now down about 950 points over the past two days. And the S&P 500 putting in four straight days of losses. Energy, one of the worst performers today. Oil prices going negative for the year during the trading session. But check out a couple of positive moves in the after hours. Pinterest jumping after activist investor Elliott Management got aboard a seat. And MongoDB is surging. 20-something percent. Let's see what, where it is right now. 27 percent. The cloud database company beating expectations for its latest quarter and giving positive guidance for Q4. Even with the gain, though, shares are still down 65 percent this year. Meantime, take a look at shares of Meta down more than 6 percent today after the EU's privacy regulator said the company cannot run ads based on users' personal data. What will this mean for the stock? Jeffrey, senior tech analyst Brent Thill joins us now. He's got a buy rating on Meta. Brent, how, how big of a deal is this? If it goes through, it's a big deal. I have a hard time believing this would go through. Uh, it, it would be terrible for consumers. It would be terrible for small businesses. Imagine that you go to London and you want to see Metallica as a band and you get targeted with Taylor Swift uh, concert tickets. Uh, if you're going to Wimbledon and you watch tennis and they target you for the cornhole championship down the street, no one wants this. This is, I think, absolutely absurd and i don't i think it lacks any type of real understanding of, of what the consumer wants what's good for the, the the businesses behind this uh and again i i think that uh the likelihood of this going through is low but if it goes through it's obviously another blow to the meta story i have a hard time believing this goes through what was the loophole within gdpr that permitted this to happen and get this far i mean was it that that contractual obligation notion 
where it was understood that if consumers, you know, consumers had to give up a certain amount of personal information in order to, you know, use the platforms. Yeah, GDPR was a whole nother situation, but I think they, they've obviously cracked down on content uh, privacy. And, and I'm a believer in this, but what I'm not a believer in is when you're on the platform, you are consuming as a, as a, as a consumer. You are making a choice and it gets better uh, if you tell the system what you like, but I don't want to see ads on things I don't care about. And ultimately, if I'm looking at tennis or I'm looking at music, I want to be targeted on the music I like, not some other music they're guessing. And so I think that ultimately, uh, again, uh, if it's if you opt in as a consumer and it's inside the ecosystem of the platform, they're not reselling it to anyone. It's inside their four walls. I have a hard time believing how this is bad for a consumer. Uh, I, I just think it's, it, 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 from my perspective, I think it hurts small businesses in Europe. Uh, they won't be able to advertise. I think it's going to hurt uh, sports. It's going to hurt uh, across the board. And I, I, I really don't understand it, to be quite honest. Um, I think, again, uh, it's not final. Uh, it's up to Meta to appeal it to if it goes through. This is the, you know, the tip of, of this, but I have a hard time believing it's going to go through. And at least the current form, it's, it's uh, discussed. So when you do the back of the envelope sort of calculations, Brent, thinking about, you know, if a significant number of people opt out and don't surrender their personal information, the, the ads are not, not no longer good. You get a cornhole ad instead of the Wimbledon ad, et cetera, et cetera. Does that equal the down 6.8 percent or, or is a lot of that the huge run up that Meta has had in recent weeks being peeled back? Yeah, I think it's the, the pullback of Zuckerberg doing a U-turn on not not letting heads go and then two weeks later changing his mind, which was the right call and uh, great decision on his behalf. So I think part of it's the give up. I think part of this is the broader tech uh, drawdown. We continue our institutional investors uh, obviously are tactically bearish on tech. We've talked about the, the headwinds moving into the recession that Jeffries is forecasting next year. And uh, again, I think right now tech is just in the penalty box in general. And you saw that across a number of tech names today, as well as you did yesterday. Uh, we need companies to clear the deck for 23 before investors feel conviction to come back into our group. Hey, Brent, it's Tim, by the way. Uh, Metallica, Meadowlands, August 3rd, 2023, if you want to get involved in that. Uh, my question for I'm you in. targeting is that is targeting. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm in. We, we talk about the dynamic with TikTok and also just, you know, as traders, we've talked about these headlines and what they could mean for Facebook. Could you talk about and quantify um, what this could mean you know, from an income perspective? And, and do you have any thoughts on this, which is also a, a great regulatory quagmire? I mean, it's a great question. It's really hard to, to quantify. One, it's, it's a proposed regulation. Uh, n- number two, I mean, they haven't even responded and it, it, they, they have the right to appeal. So. The what if on this is obviously it's disastrous if it goes through for European advertisers. No European advertiser is going to want to advertise on the platform if that's the case. Again, the, 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 the end users would leave. But you got to think about the flip side is what does this do to their local government, the local uh, uh, community? What does this do for the local shops that are trying to get awareness? You know, you walk outside Wimbledon and there's amazing uh, restaurants and, and places to go. Like, do they really want that type of impact? That hey, I'm watching tennis and I I want to go find a restaurant to eat at after. Like, this is. I just don't think they're thinking about this correctly, honestly. And I think I I don't believe that again this goes through. I think there's a very low likelihood of this happening. 
Uh, and again, remember, a lot of the regulatory uh, concerns for these Internet names have started uh, in, in Europe and they've gotten, you know, they've gotten really severe. And, and ultimately, I think they, they, they kind of tend to pass through. Look at GDPR. GDPR really had no impact. You know, go back to Google's numbers back when GDPR went through and it really didn't have a huge impact. Clearly, Apple's changes in the privacy side had changes. Um, so this will be a, a major impact to what degree. Uh, again, I would put it major uh, if it really goes through in the current form. Uh, but it's really hard to exactly quantify. And I think this is going to take time for this to, to come through. Brent, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Brent Thill. Dan, how do you think about this? Um, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I think that I think he said investors have to clear the deck for estimates for 2023. Yeah. And right now, when you look at it, I mean, estimates are basically flat for earnings and sales after a down year this year, trading about 15 times, very cheap, good balance sheet. We know the drill. They're spending a lot of money, maybe too much money. I think that's a, that 75 percent peak to trough decline over the last year was signaling. But it's had a big rally since they last reported. And there was a bad report. There's probably one more bad guide for fiscal 2023. And then the stock is probably a buy. Yeah. Um, the head of Morgan Stanley's wealth management unit said investors are in for a rude awakening when it comes to the resetting of expectations and estimates for big cap tech. Without question. I think people are paying attention. They're starting to see it. And that's the last shoe to fall. I think, by the way, that's a great thing. If we finally get these revisions, these stocks selling off the five, six horsemen that's been leading this entire market for the last decade and a half, that will mean we're close to the end of the beginning. But we're not there yet, Melms. Yeah. I mean, I think you look at big cap uh, tech earnings, and it, it's just very clear that they're seeing a diminution in the ad revenue, in all types of revenue that they're trying to generate, and they're recognizing that and having to cut costs. And so until that really cycles through, it's not really investable. On Meta in particular, you know, you could never, ever underestimate the UK or the EU's willingness to, like, stick it to big cap tech. You just cannot underestimate it. And I just don't think it has that much of an impact, right? No one is supposed to be going onto Facebook to, like, get great ads. They're trying to connect with people. And I think it's important to make note we as you know the users of Facebook we're the product we're not the consumers after the break the semi setup how the White House's economic plan is impacting the chip space got the details next and check out shares of Paramount falling hard today and the drop has options traders piling in how they're playing the move when fast money returns Welcome back to Fast Money. A rough day for semis. Losses coming ahead of President Biden's visit to a new Taiwan <laughs> semiconductor factory in Arizona. CNBC's Christina Parsonevelis has been following the story. She's got the very latest. Christina. Made in America with a little help from Taiwan, Melissa. Taiwan Semiconductor is tripling its initial investment, promising to spend $40 billion bucks on not one, but two new semiconductor manufacturing hubs, also known as FABs in Phoenix, Arizona. President Biden was accompanied by TSMC customers, the CEOs of NVIDIA, AMD, Micron, Apple, at an event that you're seeing on your screen right now, and this happened this afternoon, celebrating the expansion. Both Phoenix Fabs are expected to produce at least 50,000 wafers per month, which sounds like a lot, but that's only a fraction of what's produced in Taiwan. Chip stocks falling today, like you mentioned, Melissa, along with the broader market shares of TSMC down 2.5%, with AMD at least 4% lower. TSMC's investment news, though, is part of a greater movement to onshore chip manufacturing to the United States. But keep in mind, these fabs take years to build. Mel? When they are built, Christine, I would imagine that it would be more expensive to manufacture these chips here in the United States versus elsewhere in the world. So who eats those costs? We do. 
hundred percent. And the we've consumer, already, so it's passed to the consumer uh, as opposed to yeah, and the, sucked in by Taiwan Semi. Well, and, Taiwan Semiconductor just this past quarter increased their prices and increased margins, and that was already passed on to the consumer. So the only positive thing out of all of this is that maybe it'll bring more competition into the country with Intel, Micron, Samsung, or I should say Samsung and, and Intel uh, building their fabs here, so that it's not just dominated by TSMC because they have a, they hold all the pricing power. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Christina Parts-Nevelis. Tim Seymour, how do you try this? I'll tell you what, it, it may be a little bit early to go crazy, and we've had a big run in these semis. And if you, you know, talk about things defying gravity, the semiconductor, the SMH, or even Taiwan Semi have outperformed the S&P by 30% off of that CPI low. And they've actually held up reasonably well when you consider almost a, a parabolic move. I would say Taiwan Semi is one of the most important companies in the world. And we talk about semis and some of their leading edge chips. We know they're going to be down next year. The question is, when do you buy them in advance of the cyclicality? 23 is a write-off, and you should be probably buying the stock. And I've said this, when you get that iPhone uh, warning and, and that shipment warning is the time to buy this stock with two hands. So when would that be? January? Uh, probably, February? Probably sometime before late January when they report. I mean, I'll just say this. I think back to 2017. Remember when Foxconn went to Wisconsin, they were going to spend $10 billion and, and make an assembly plant. And last year, they scaled it back mm-hmm. to a billion dollars. So I'd slow your roll on all this stuff. And I think to the point we were talking about with Apple. So slow well, your roll on this. Yeah, you know. I mean, uh, you know, last night we were talking about time. Apple a, a little bit. And we're like, what does that do? It's really inflationary. And I just don't think yeah. that, the, like, listen, we made a deal. Our manufacturers, our consumers 40 years ago with all this cheap manufacturing for a reason. And I just don't think it's going to come done undone that quickly. Yeah. If you think the broader market's going to go take a look at the October lows, which I do, I think the rest of us may in some capacity, then these semis are going to do the same thing. AMD was a $55 stock at its low in October, traded up to 78 and I think it's headed back there again. They're still actually somewhat expensive in this environment. Coming up, media meltdown. Paramount sinking hard in today's session, but the move is sparking some interest in the option fits. The details on that one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Paramount shares dropping sharply after CEO Bob Backish said ad revenue is going to come in lower than expected for the fourth quarter. Options traders are betting there is more pain to come. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, on the heels of that disappointing news, we did see two times the average daily put volume. One of the bigger trades we saw early in the session was a purchase of 1,000 of the December 20 puts. The buyer paid $1.21 a contract. That buyer betting that Paramount could fall another 5% by December expiration. They didn't need to wait that long, though, because it fell at least that much by the end of the day. All right. And obviously what, what Bob Backer says raises concerns about all of the media properties, Tim. And I think the cyclicality around the ad business and all these media companies and streaming, it's, it's, this was the secular trend everybody had to own a year ago or a year and a half ago. It's a trend nobody wants and it was the first one to fall. It's the first one to rally back. It's just not time. Uh, and again, I think we've, we've talked about some of the issues with Netflix and why that's a very different story on some level. Um, of those, uh, I do think you want to own Disney. All right. uh, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe, and you won't want to miss David Faber's interview with the CEO of Paramount. That's tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. David Faber, of course, being on the Mount Rushmore. Of course. And, of course, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Tim Seymour. In this environment, the market move again, J&J to me gives you defensive consumer products and pharma. It will outperform. Julie Beal. I like Duck Creek Technologies. It's small cap tech, not too sexy. That's how I like them. Dan, Dan Nathan. Here's a pair. 
short BLK by BX here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Paris trade. Yeah. You know, Got Julie it. mentioned earlier, but we have some time. That she yeah, goes yeah. to a bank that gives really her cookies, good. which sounds like yeah. a great bank. Clearly, <laughs> Tim goes to a bank that gives out those ridiculously sexy vests okay. that he's sporting uh, look, right I now. Mean, you know, I mean, can I get one of those things? Let me ask no. you, have you been wearing that outfit since the 80s? I mean, come on, let's let's do this. Pretty much. I mean, they pick on the ones they love, I realize, Mel, but I didn't realize I was coming home to the family dinner in a vest do and getting taken out back. A final Where are we sitting oh, yeah. right now? Okay. Where is our home? The NASDAQ market CEO site. of the That's NASDAQ, fair. Adina Freeman, one of the great CEOs in this country, NASDAQ sister, NDAQ. All right. We got them in the house, by the way. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.